Welcome to the Aquatic Mammals Journal Historical Perspectives podcast series. The Historical Perspectives series is an ever-growing body of work that consists of more than a hundred interviews with scientists, researchers, animal trainers, legislators, veterinarians, artists, and more who helped found and shape the marine mammal field from its beginning and as it continues. I am your host, John Anderson. Today, we'll revisit a conversation that I had in 2008 with a longtime member of and contributor to the marine mammal community. Dr. Bruce Mate is one of the world's leading authorities on whales and best known for pioneering the tracking of whales using satellite monitored radio tags. He studied sea lion migrations to earn his doctorate at the University of Oregon in 1973 and did postdoctoral work in biochemistry looking at heavy metal metabolism in pinnipeds. Dr. Mate has since done research on an abundance of different marine mammal species. Bruce is currently director of Oregon State University's Marine Mammal Institute and a professor of fisheries and wildlife. He has contributed much to the field of marine mammal science. So let's listen to a few of his thoughts as he told me in his own words. I started out doing pinniped uh, work and just trying to find out what the home range of seals were. And we think of them as very localized populations. But here in the Northwest, uh, animals that come in to feed on chum salmon for the Neetarts uh, Bay area is one time of the year. And then another time of the year, they'll be in Tillamook, and then in the Columbia River, and then sometimes up even to southern Washington. And that was fascinating um, because it changed my concept of how seals were moving about. And then friends said, well, gosh, do something with whales. But it's challenging. How are you going to put a tag on a whale? And I really started thinking about that. And it was interesting that it's a collegial interaction that puts the seed in your mind. And it points out the value of young people going to meetings, listening to the current philosophy, and more important than listening to just what people have found, listen to the extension of what's the next question, or what's the technology that's rate limiting. So that was very helpful. And <laughs> interestingly, um, Bill Watkins and Bill Cheville uh, were tagging whales back in that time with a device that was quite large. And I, I, I actually told them I found that personally offensive. <laughs> you know, I thought, can't you do something that's limited to the blubber layer? And um, so the very first tags I developed were, uh, I called them barnacle tags because they spread out under the skin in the blubber layer for gray whales. And we were successful in tracking animals all the way from Mexico to Alaska. And that was exciting. If it hadn't been for that um, demonstration of capability, then none of the rest of it would have happened, probably. Um, I might add that we couldn't find anybody to fund that. So picking a spouse or a soulmate is probably the most important career move anybody can make. And my wife's a registered nurse, and she said, well, you really believe in this. If we can't get it funded, let's take our vacation time. And we wound up second mortgaging the house and selling the second car 
to go do that first experiment. And I sincerely mean, you know, without that and that support, the rest wouldn't have happened. But now we, part of it's the technology's developed and I've pioneered that field, so I've been part of that for large whales. Uh, equipment's become smaller. Uh, we've gotten better at keeping things attached. Uh, it has involved going through the blubber layer and into the uh, muscle mass to incorporate the fascia between the blubber and the muscle. But this is where the best veterinary opinion is what you rely on. So talking to people like Sam Ridgeway, Joe Jurassic, and Bill Medway convinced me that that was the way to go. But it wasn't without um, concern on my part and certainly continued concern on other people's part who haven't perhaps had as much uh, time to get that informed opinion from those valued colleagues. But this is an area where adequate blood flow uh, can fight infection if something like that occurs. There's a tough fascia layer things hold on to. And the inherent property of muscle to wall off foreign bodies. So that's a lot of technical detail to say that, you know, sometimes you start one place and you think you're going somewhere else and you might come back to the same place where somebody else was earlier. Uh, maybe for different reasons or maybe the same. But in the end, that's really worked well. So now we're tracking whales up to 20 months, uh, like sperm whales. We've had 450 days for blue whales. Our goal originally was to get at least three months out of a tag so we could move from an area that we knew where the animals were to the next migration and set us into the next uh, frame of the season of the year so that we could eventually get seasonal distribution. Well, now they, they work well enough that we have to ration battery power and come up with duty cycles so we can spread that um, good information out over a longer period of time. What a joy. Um, we haven't gotten to the point where they can recycle and make their own power, but we're now starting to seriously look at that because we are achieving attachment times that are long enough to warrant that. Um, the kinds of information we're getting are really exciting. I mean, we've tracked right whales from the tip of South Africa with Peter Best all the way down to the Antarctic Ice Edge. It's involved animals being around uh, multiple historic whaling areas where for the first time we go, oh, the whales that were harvested there are at least in part from this population. Even in fact identifying that the animals continued to summer off South Africa in old whaling grounds that Peter was unaware of. So now he's able to study more of the animals he cares about and get more of the full life cycle. Um, humpback whales going from uh, the equator of West Africa all the way down to the Ice Edge. Uh, gray whales starting now to explore areas in the high Arctic uh, to a much more significant degree now their population's recovered and the ice has been receding. So things that are really cutting edge issues as well um, the things we're doing with sperm whales are centered largely around what the effects of seismic noise may be from the oil and gas industry on a deep diving whale, um, which is more exposed to sound because of the uh, SOFAR channel effect than perhaps the baleen whales that just occupy the upper uh, 200 meters of the water column usually. I mean, I could go on and on. We tag three to five stocks of whales every year and we're usually wrapping up and analyzing uh, three or four population or, or stock oriented projects 
and doing three or four or five and planning for six to ten in the future and, and that's the mix I mean you you sort of have to be forward-looking or there won't be a forward all of my group runs on soft money which means we don't have any real solid state support at all um, from salaries uh, office help all the way to field projects so we have to go out and find grants and contracts or donor support and in fact donor supports become almost half of what we do now it's become a very important part um, there have been some very key government agencies that have helped us particularly in the development of tags the office of naval research has been critical the minerals management service for offshore oil and gas development has a keen interest in how uh, endangered whales may be impacted by prospective uh, development so they've been a primary user and early on helped with development I can even think of individual people in agencies that stepped up to the plate at times defended this uh, concept and made a huge difference huge you know um, and it, <laughs> I would love to mention their names Jerry M and Minerals Management Service in Alaska uh, Bob Hoffman at the Marine Mammal Commission, Bob Gisner, the Office of Naval Research. These people played important roles not only in my career and in the technology development, but making it possible for us to find out the information that's now being used by managers to better conserve the endangered whales. And they may not go recognized, you know, because their names won't be on the papers, but pivotal? <laughs> Absolutely pivotal. Um, people who understood and appreciated a need and took a risk and I'm happy to have been a part of their risk-taking formula feel like it was a really good investment so I know that these tapes are largely designed for perhaps students but if they're used by other people who go into other careers just know that your impact can be heartfelt profound and important even if you aren't actually doing the work if you are a person who can make things happen you are as key as anybody else in the system to make that change possible so a number of our studies that are grant or contract funded are for very specific purposes I mean tagging was developed initially by an interest by NOAA National Marine Fisheries Service Minerals Management Service and ONR to try and figure out these endangered species problems that they saw as really important and interestingly it wasn't to go out and find out things about the common species they wanted this stuff applied immediately to endangered species because that was where the greatest need was and uh, there was a, a early conference in Virginia at Early House that brought together all these veterinary experts and marine biologists and the summary remark was we find the risk to be so small compared to the risk to the species of not knowing this information we feel it's really important for this technology to develop and move forward so as a result even though uh, right whales off the uh, North Atlantic were one of our first uh, species and the technology was very rudimentary we found things right away that were important we thought right whales were slow-moving nearshore surface skim feeders we found out they went way offshore moved at high speeds and dove deep routinely <laughs> it's just a difference in technology 
But part of the spinoff of that was, well, here's the main area where they're feeding in the Bay of Fundy. And while we used to think as a field that that was their complete home range for the summer, we found out that the, that's, that's sort of the focal area, but their home range is huge. They go out of the Bay of Fundy routinely, but they come back. That is a f central area of importance. And where it was was right in the midst of the shipping channel. Now, you can't do anything about moving whales, but by finding out where they were, that data could be used to show to the shipping industry that if they just moved their shipping lanes to the east, uh, you know, just a matter of four to ten miles, they could affect a change of reducing the probability of hitting a whale by 80%. And Moira Brown did a great job of depicting that information um, from other researchers' surveys and our, our own tagging data, and she got it done like that. Well, I'm sure she didn't, wouldn't express it that way because it was hard work, but having the data where it wasn't just a bunch of emotional hysteria, but here's the data, what do you want to do? And the shipping industry said, well, we want to move the shipping lanes, of course. And they took it to the International Maritime Organization. So when you have successes like that and you have examples, they grow on themselves. We've been able to do the same thing uh, with regard to some of the marine mammal fishery conflicts in the past. Um, Anything you can do to improve conservation that has real on-the-ground value and demonstrable. I mean, you know, a seventh grader can look at that and go, I can make that decision. And it sure makes it easy for uh, complicated processes of government to go, yeah, that's the right way to go. So even though U.S. policy is uh, to conserve whales, and we, our main conservation is we don't kill them. We aren't a whaling nation. By and large, I mean, we have some subsistence whaling in Alaska, but policy can do so much more when you know where mortality is woven into human activities. None of us wants to think that human activity is going to really prevent the recovery of species, but we find examples of it pretty routinely. And when you can home in on those features and say, this is the element, this is the time, this is the place. A small change in human behavior can affect a huge change in conservation. People are going to be very supportive of that. So much so that um, we now find that about half of our programs are funded through private donor support. Or frequently it is that we have a government support for a year or two and then they're moving on to other issues and it's the donor support that perpetuates that study through to its sufficient data to be really conclusive or you know to follow it on or to add tags to a project that may not be funded adequately for a sample size that's going to be meaningful and uh, so we've come up with some creative ways of doing that i mean at times we've had we've had two brothers that were loggers here in oregon support the first blue whale work we we did to show that that was feasible uh, just write out a check and say yeah, we think this would be a really good thing to support. Um, to the point where we have an adopt-a-whale program where people can buy a tag and put it into the mix of an experiment that's ongoing and whether they want that data to go to themselves or a grandchild or to the local high school's biology class, that that is a meaningful way of supplementing um, or implementing an important piece of research. So we've, we've been entrepreneurial and creative here at OSU, and that's proven to be really important, very, very important. 
we have not done a single experiment with any whale population or stock that hasn't offered a wow moment to it. Every single one from the very beginning. We start out with a premise and we kind of know, think we know, <laughs> where we're starting from and we know what the project's supposed to do, but frequently the result brings a, a gee whiz moment and a reassessment of what the paradigm was before we started. So I mentioned right whales before where, you know, we thought they were slow-moving nearshore surface skim feeders and found out it was exactly the opposite. You know, all those were elements, but those were the elements that people could see with the technologies they had, you know, boat-based or aerial survey or photo ID. So, yeah, I mean, to tell you the truth, that's one of the most exciting parts of the job is it, you know, next to God and the whales, I'm the next to know. <laughs> Something that has been a key element of their life that's been in evolutionary terms, tens of millions of years probably, but it's eluded us. And so because we put technology on the animals, it sort of takes our eyes and ears in a sense on their journey. Um, we put the tags on the whales and then they tell their own story. You know, we can't manipulate them with joysticks to go left, right, or, or north or south. That's been really important. And then to get that information and um, brilliant students that are looking at things, and that's been exciting and stimulating, to analyze it and say, what does that mean? How does that change our concept? And every study's offered one of those. They do that? <laughs> really? <laughs> and so I, I feel very blessed. Uh, I'll give you a sense of the most recent one. Um, not only is it not published, it isn't even, hasn't even been presented yet to a scientific audience. We've been instrumenting sperm whales with a new tag that provides GPS quality locations and TDR quality records of their dive patterns. One second increments, one meter resolution. And where in the past we've only instrumented any animal, uh, or, or other folks like the wonderful tags from Hui, the D tags, put on with suction cups. They get a glimpse of an animal for, you know, two, four hour, maybe a day. We've been able to instrument animals now for long periods of months, multiple weeks. We're, we've got an experiment in play right now that should go for months. And when you get that back, um, wow, all of a sudden there are new things to look at that. I hadn't even thought of before I started the experiment. Experiment was to do one thing over here, but the side benefit's been huge. Before when we had location only tags, we saw that we could tag female sperm whales and they'd stay together as a, a social unit over an extended period of time. The males we tagged in a social unit, they spread apart. Anywhere you'd find them, they'd be with a, a unit of males, but much more amorphous, no long-term bonds. Well now, with these GPS units, we get a time depth record that says, man, there's no difference between day and night. These animals are working hard the whole time. And wow, look at this. If we had this TDR record, we said this 12 hours was surface resting. But because we've got GPS locations, no, it's not surface resting. The animal's moving 44 kilometers in 12 hours. Wow, that's three and a half kilometers per hour, over two miles an hour. They aren't resting, they're looking for another source of food. You know, these are squid eaters, they're deep divers. So every once in a while they'll do a dive, 
a V-shaped spiky diver, it's exploration. Nope, keep going. And now we're getting multiple animals and going, look at this. I thought sperm whales would all go to the same depth when they travel together. You know, there's a squid layer, that's where they ought to be. No, some of them are at that, some of them are lower than that, some of them are above that. Wow, there's a possibility here, there's social networking and the foraging. That strategy's never been described. Well, why, why would it be? Nobody's ever had the view of that. You know, we can see bubble net feeding, cooperative bubble net feeding for humpback whales. I think we've got sperm whales doing the same thing in three dimensions with social coordination and the same animals aren't always doing the deep dives. They're trading off. Wow. You know, so all of a sudden there's this whole new area of awareness through a technology that's never been there before. It's never been there. I mean, GPS has never been used on whales. Location-only tags, we're using Argos location that, oh, they'd give you the location with one to three kilometers most of the time. You say, well, that's fine, I just want to know the seasonal uh, distribution. So that defines the migration route. If it's off 10 kilometers, who cares? The dot on the map's bigger than that. But now, I can see the potential for dialing in um, and this was our goal in developing this kind of tag to be able to perform a controlled exposure experiment where we brought in seismic uh, or Navy acoustics and see whether you jerk the animal's chain. You know, how does it affect the animal's habits? Put the tag on early. Have it uh, a control period before that starts so you really understand that, hey, there's natural variability here and individual animals may be different from one another. Uh, we need to know that before we start. And then do the experiment with noise. And you do it until you do ring the animal's chimes a bit. You want to see at what point do we change behavior. That means underwater. The animals just come to the surface to breathe, basically. So their life is underwater. We want to know uh, when does the animal vote by moving? <laughs> you know, how much sight tenacity was there before that? Um, does the animal change its depth of dive because it's noisier down below? Uh, after the experiment ends, how long does it take to restore that kind of behavior that you saw beforehand? If the animal gets displaced, does it come back to preferred habitat? Can you do uh, an assessment of the animal's prey base so that you know when the animal is displaced, whether it has to go to secondary habitat, or if it's just as good as the other habitat, then it's just the cost of locomotion different level of impact. So we're getting to the point now, and this has been very directed in our research program, trying to develop tags with a specific applied value to find out information that we've never known before that will affect the way regulatory agencies manage the activities in their domain. And with informed and intelligent decisions, I think we can really re dramatically reduce the impact of human activities on marine mammals and give those animals the space at the time they need it so they can recover. And that's the goal for all of us, I think. Well, I think most people would look at the kind of work I do in the field or a documentary and go, you've got an ideal job. That's what I want to do when I grow up or that's what I want to change to. I would say that there's about half my job I would give up in a heartbeat if I could. You know, if, if I didn't have to uh, do the bureaucracy of uh, permits, the logistics, the getting money, 
all those necessities for going out in the field. But that's the reason I am able to do it is I'm willing to take on the whole package. So I would say don't look for things that are necessarily easy. My wife always says if it was easy, somebody else would have done it. <laughs> and there's real truth to that. So, uh, and also, if it wasn't hard, it probably wouldn't be a meaningful problem. Expect adversity, expect some challenge, but bite into something that um, you can buy into personally, that you can be excited about, and you'll feel pride and accomplishment when you get it done. Um, for myself, I, I think that it, you need the whole package, but nobody starts out that way. We all start with fairly small projects, often as parts of a team. I think part of my big regret in my career is I was never part of a laboratory where there were a lot of people doing something similar. And I've seen the benefits of that um, from some of the really great labs that have developed over time. Uh, Don Sinis Lab, uh, Minnesota, um, LaBeouf and others at UC Santa Cruz. Um, the, the kind of things that Peter Tyack's putting together at Woods Hole, um, and I, I don't mean to leave anybody out, I'm just citing those as examples of where groups of students get together and there are multiple professors. In fact, we're trying to achieve something like that right now at Oregon State University. By creating a Marine Mammal Institute, we want to focus on marine mammal ecology, where there's a lot more happening than just a single discipline looking at a problem in one certain way. I've seen this work really effectively. I've, I have become, as I've matured in my career, a participant in multiple PI projects where, you know, when you can rely on somebody else for the acoustics or for the uh, visual survey or the, uh, the vessel being in the right place at the right time or doing the oceanography, and I come in and do my part, wow, what an effective combination. So I would say look for those opportunities where they occur. Um, for me right now, at this place where I am in my career, um, I've been eligible to retire for a number of years. I certainly am enjoying the contributions I make in the field of science that I'm in. But I think I, at this point, I have a bigger contribution to make, not by being the principal investigator in a tagging project as much as perhaps mentoring other um, principal investigators but also creating a, a structure like this institute, Marine Mammal Institute, where we can get draw in funding from donors and corporations and other entities to make something happen that will outlive all of us, that will sustain the, the studies that we care about and do it in a multidisciplinary fashion where it's likely to produce more than just a single stream of investigation. So I'd say expect change. Um, it's a natural part of evolution. And I think all the prudent predators are good opportunists. I would say to be a good scientist, you probably need to look for opportunities uh, for the research question, for how to do it, for the team building, and as you mature in your career, how you work with other professionals to achieve the kind of results you both want to see happen. If you would like to watch Dr. Mate's complete interview or other scientist HP interviews, then please visit aquaticmammalsjournal.org and click on the Historical Perspectives tab near the top. <laughs>